Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Gene Govin, a farmer and rancher from North Dakota. Gene, I actually met when he came and spoke at our Midwest Soil Health Summit that I put on with my other job, the Sustainable Farming Association. And uh, he mentioned something that, well, he, he talked about a lot of great things, but one that has stuck out to me is that he he leaves more grass behind in his rotation today than he used to produce total. I think that's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to hearing how he does that or how he did that. And uh, so thank you, Gene, so much for joining me and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Uh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be visiting with you again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I enjoy it. And I, I appreciate you uh, you taking the time. I know it's a busy time of year for you. You mentioned before the recording started that you just, just got out of the tractor. You spent all morning getting some seating done. So I, I know you're busy and I appreciate the time. But um, before we get in too much uh, well, actually, why don't we start maybe by just talking a little bit about your farm and ranch, where you're at, a little bit of the geography and, and stuff. And then uh, before we get into too much detail on what you're doing, uh, we'll go back and, and l- learn kind of the history of how you got to where you are. Uh, we live about 70, 74 miles north of Bismarck, 50 miles southeast of Minot, or 12 miles north of Turtle Lake. We live in the prairie pothole country, and it's called the Coteau area. So we have a lot of prairie potholes. Uh, it's most of them are dry, no water in this year, but it, then it gets to be it's very. Some places a twenty quarter mile away, they're overflowing, and all depends on infiltration rate, health, of the soil, how much mm-hmm. ran off when the snow melted. Perfect. The Prairie Pothole region is crazy how wide and vast of an area that is, because that I think goes from where you're at all the way down here into Southwest Minnesota even. So it's a pretty big region, but, uh, but why don't you talk a little bit about your history? I'm not sure. I don't remember if your family was in agriculture. I think the ranch that you're on today was not necessarily family land. So maybe talk a little bit about the, the land base that you, how you got, uh, got into the land base that you're at. Uh, the history and what it what it looked like when you got on it. Oh, okay, yes. I've been here since 1967. And this um the first family person on this of uh, the Govan family. And actually it was when it was going to NDSU and then my grandfather was, was places nine miles south of me here called going into spring, asked if I could come home and help him put his crop in because he wasn't feeling well. So I did that and then uh, stayed through fall, helped get the crop off and the cattle back in the yard, calves weaned and things like that. And then it's going to go back to university. This is quarters then and not semesters. So it's sure. going to go back after Thanksgiving and day before I was ready to take off, the local banker called says, hey, there's a place for sale 12 miles north of Turtle Lake, would you be interested? And I told him, gosh, Warren, I only have $200 to my name. And he says, we'll cover you a contract for deed. So, <laughs> so I've been here ever since. Wow. Wow. So you were just 
late teens, very early 20s. And I was 20 years old. You were 20 years old and the bank offers you a farm, a ranch. What what was going through your mind at this point? Was that something you had hoped to do at some point? Uh, or was this totally kind of out of the blue? It was sort of out of the picture financially for me and I wasn't even considering it. Hmm. I was considering going for egg economics and egg education for a major and well, that went by the wayside, and I've been here for well, quite a few years now. Yeah. Semi-retired, lease the cropland out, don't own any livestock anymore, but we do custom grazing. Yeah, and and I still have a little bit of my machinery, farming machinery left. Neighbors keep me busy. I do custom seeding with a little fifteen feet of no-till drill. Mm-hmm. That's what I was doing this morning, finishing up the job about. Well, about 28 miles from here. I'll see actually seeding a 20 species mix of a diverse uh, perennial species provided by Fish and Wildlife Service and Ducks Unlimited for a, for private land reseeding back to perennials. Well, that's what I was doing this morning yeah. and yesterday. That's awesome. The day before and the last week. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's a haul. Neighbors don't let me retire. I'm semi-retired. Sure. Sure. Have to, have to be doing something is imagine sitting back and doing nothing. Yeah. No, I I think that's probably pretty common in farming farming and agriculturalists is that uh they can never fully truly retire. Uh that's that's not really in them. They always got to be doing something, which is awesome. But so back to the 1967, I think when you purchased that place, talk a little bit about the actual land base. What were the operations or the enterprises you ran at that point? And what was the management, what had been the management, and what was the management you started off employing uh, on that that land? Okay, it was, it was 768 acres, and we have meand, some meandered shoreline on a, on a local lake here called Crooked Lake. And we're about 50-50 cropland and native prairie. And now we're, now we're about 1,500 acres, and it's still about the same ratio, 50-50 cropland, native prairie. Mm-hmm. Cropland with the time was one third black summer fallow, and then then wheat and flax, oats, whatever diversified. But it was just then the grazing was season long, grazed till there was nothing left, and then then you start feeding. So just to clarify a little bit on what you just talked about there, you said black summer fallow. Is that is that black summer fallow? You mean like it's tilled all summer long just to control weeds? Yes. It was, it was okay. Black summer fallow at the time was considered I uh, have the soil, the cropland soil idle, nothing growing on it, and you cultivate it every time you get some weeds. Yeah. So you don't have anything growing on it. Let it rest black, and then you get a better yield the next year. Well, it turns out we were just mining, mining the nutrients. Yeah. You know, SOM soil organic matter breakdown is then the next year we have a fairly good wheat crop. That's history. Now there's no more fallow, and do been doing a lot of intensive season long and companion cropping at and also fall seeded cover crops behind the combine when the main crop is harvested. So yeah, and and I want to get into that. I think. But I, I always think it's important just to hear the context of, you know, where things came from to where they are today. Um, and yeah, that that summer fallow is something I've never fully understood that 
the idea to save moisture or something and to make better weed control the next year or something and then continuous grazing i think that's that's even still pretty common but it sounds like just in general the land base that you took over was very conventionally managed on all all sides uh yes and, and it's rolling hilly so the hilltops are sort of gray and the and there was topsoil was all down in the low spots but, but it turns out we can rebuild so in, in fact that's what i was doing where I finished seeding today for some, actually friends of mine. They wanted it seeded last year, but it had a history of 10 years of being leased out to another neighbor of seven years of soybeans, three years of canola. And uh, I thought about it. I told them I couldn't seed it with a clear conscience to a perennials because they need to rebuild it when there's also be a high risk of chemical carryover that would zap any tender, tiny perennial grass seedings. So we did a full season cover crop last year, and then I just finished seeding it this morning or at, towards noon here. It was actually had some mushrooms popping up here and there, and it, it was, it's amazing how fast it, when you start rebuilding, regenerate first before you seed to perennials. Yeah. And of course, they also use livestock in the equation, yeah. diversified uh, cattle and sheep. Yeah, in one year's time, it was amazing how how the fertility and vigor of the soil rebounded yeah. by the combination of uh, about a 15-species mix of cover crops plus livestock, which mm. was a combination of cattle and sheep. Yeah. And, and to have that uh, fungal webbing network in the soil rebound so fast that there were mushrooms popping up in the field here and there. It's remarkable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's what your your fellow North Dakotan Gabe Brown calls priming the soil, right? Uh, he, is that if you take a, just a biologically dead soil that's been tilled or chemically you know, sprayed for years and has very little biological life and try to plant in a diverse perennial mix, you end up with it, it almost stunted, largely sometimes from chemical carryover, but also just there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing there to kind of get plant growth going. And so you kind of encouraged him to do this diverse mix. And it sounds like is that that's probably something you experienced on your own place first. Where did you first come across the idea of priming the soil and, and uh, you know, using covers to build soil in your cropland specifically? Uh, actually, I grew up with uh, what we would call companion cropping. A third of, mentioned a one-third fallow, some around would have 50-50 crop wheat, summer fallow wheat. But uh, I grew up with cover cover cropping where one-third of the cropland each year had to have sweet clover in with the mix. So there was never any really bare fallow. Hmm. And then the, they would either be used as a green green fallow incorporate it into the soil or take some hay crop off from the sweet clover. But I, uh, my grandfather was actually paid in the 1930s by the U.S. government to include sweet clover in, his, in the rotation. So it's, wow. cover cropping is nothing new. It's almost really, a, really an old tradition for building soil going back 100 years. Cover cropping, what's more recent new is the diversity of it. Sure. You know, three, five, Species mix is good, and then you sort of start leveling off, get up to, say, 8, 10 species. Then you have another jump in uh, biological diversity. 
I'm talking biological diversity in the soil, soil health jump. And then you start getting 15, 20 species mixed. Then you have another big leap. Mm -hmm. Actually, Gabe and I were talking about that years ago. Build the soil first before we put turn it to perennials. Yeah. And and cover cropping. When I'm saying cover cropping and and season long, um, that also includes the diversity of not just the species of plants, but livestock, that's an additional diversity. Use the combinations. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing how fast soil can re- rebound when you start incorporating diversity. And the amazing part of it is is the synergy of diversity. We're, we're a seeding, talking with the landowner, we're a seeding this morning, finishing up. He was concerned about putting extra diversity in because it's the mental thought from years and years of growing up in agriculture that any additional species is going to take more moisture away from your intended intended crop. Yeah. And it's actually getting to be just the opposite. Mm-hmm. We, instead of five, six, eight, ten units of water to get a unit, unit of production, or maybe five, four, three units of water to get a unit of production. And for example, I mentioned to you before, Jared, with just the bioculture versus monoculture two plants together, oats and peas together versus either alone have up to four times deeper rooting. It's amazing synergy of diversity. Wow. That's yeah. four times more acres going down. That's a good point. So those are the things that's, that's sort of the things I sort of grew up with, but it's huh. increasing and it's the learning curve and I'll never get there. Well, you're farther along than, than most people. Where where would you where did you start to learn these things? Uh where did I start to learn? Yeah. I don't know if I can give a clear answer for that. It's up to subtle journey. Everything sure. is all what's that and turn around and look. It's like watching your child grow up yeah. that you're taken <laughs> care of and just put down for a turn around and when did that happen? Yeah, they grew that's, up. A, that's a really good analogy. It's yeah, like when did they turn 35? Well, it was every day they got a little closer. And it's like, when did you learn all things soil health? Well, it was a, it was a lifetime of, of learning, I'm sure. And so were there any big uh, inspirations or mentors that kind of helped guide you in your along your way? Or was it a lot of just on your part observation of here and there people doing things and, and then digging into it? Uh, for what would be called or termed regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, organic, uh, regenerative agriculture. I don't know. It's such a big learning curve. I don't know. It's hard to reflect as there's so many thousands of little things. Yeah. But any one thing, any change in one minute things changes the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And it's the further we go, the more I see how, actually, the further I go, the more I see how little I do know. So Yeah. But yeah. it's 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 a fun journey. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything more fun in so-called semi-retirement than <laughs> than having fun helping neighbors and get a more viable uh, what would you call it community dynamics. Sure, it isn't just it is community dynamics to me as just the soil health. Mm-hmm. It's also the community around you, the people. If, yeah, if I'm doing good and my next door neighbors aren't. What I'm doing isn't sustain, sustainable. So, so I'm just having fun working with people that are 
That's a really good point, the community impact, because, I mean, these things really do have a larger impact than just just on soil. I mean, you impact your soil, your soil gets more productive, you get more profitable, you help other farmers do the same, you all become more profitable, you have more money to spend in your local community, and now you're impacting people that aren't even on the land or involved in agriculture, not to mention the fact that you're selling food that's more nutrient-dense. I mean, it really is all connected. Uh, yes, it's a big community web. Like, I can't stress it enough. We're just those of us. I'm a mentor in the, with the North Dakota Grazing Coalition Mentoring Network. And us old timers, I'm 77. Us old timers that started the, the group and years of it. There's four of us have over uh, about 170 years combined cross-fencing experience, so to speak. And we keep track of each other and still compare notes. Yeah. And we're all semi-retired. <laughs> and, and we're all continually learning new things each year. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. And I I am curious, you uh you, that's a good segue there. You kind of talk about cross-fencing experience into the so into the grazing side. Um you mentioned that when you got on that ranch that originally it was kind of just a continuous graze system turn them out they'll graze everything till there's nothing left and then you feed the rest of the year i suppose what were some of the early uh what were some of the early changes you started making and and then uh you know at the the maybe the pinnacle or the climax of your grazing management career what would you say what were you doing at that point that all kind of contributed to getting to where you were leaving more forage behind than you used to produce total Oh, now you're really forcing me to think. <laughs> I have some pasture that's long and narrow, two miles long and about three-quarter mile to the furthest back and part of it. And it'd be the same species, say western wheatgrass and native grass here, or other cool season grasses. They, they weren't existing if they did close to the lakeshore where there's water, they always were nipped down. And half a mile back away from the lakeshore, they were tall and wolfy, and they wouldn't touch them. Hmm. And it puzzled me. And I was told then by so-called in the know, just put salt blocks and mineral back there. They'll go back there. It didn't help. And I started hearing about a little about holistic management, Ellen Savory and others. And the SCS then is NRCS now saying, oh, I'll do some cross fencing. I did that. Do four pasture twice over with four pasture three times. You know, that's the thing. Four pasture twice over. It helped. But if I'd have kept on with that level, I'd have maybe only had an increase of. I would say 25, 30% sure. monitoring in pounds of beef per acre. Or a lot of people say, how many head of cattle? Yeah. What? I used to run 55, 60 cow-calf pairs. I'd have stayed with that, and maybe it would have been 70, 75 cow-calf pairs. Mm. And still things weren't right. And I just got more and more into it, more detailed into cross-fencing. And then the light bulb came on. I have to manage soil first the cow second because i can't raise any more pounds of beef and the soil is healthy so i have to manage forage first and then i did a lot more cross fencing sold my creep feeders 
and started moving so that hopefully would never take a bite on tender regrowth after a first bite. Sure. And immediately I jumped up to 50% in during drought years in the middle to later 1980s, increased the herd by 50%. And into the 1990s, by the year 2000, 20 years across fencing had tripled the cow herd, same acres. Wow. And then if productivity still kept increasing, we're about 450% increase in productivity on a per acre basis for forage, but I refuse to harvest more than 300%. I like to leave 120, 150% more than we used to raise before. Yeah. So feed the soil first, then yeah. the livestock or secondary. That's incredible. And it's, it's been working real good. Drought resiliency. We had, we had a little over 90 inches of snow last winter, and, this, and the snow melt this spring, we had from the snow and snow banks, we had zero surface runoff, all mm -hmm. infiltrated right where it was. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to, let's see, snow melt that came a little later, been six been about seven weeks since the had the snow melt and just now we're starting to have a little water surface in our wetlands even an eighth of a mile snow banks eighth of a mile from the wetland it's taken seven eight weeks to start showing up hmm. zero surface runoff so that's taken years of years to get there it doesn't happen overnight but uh, I had a long-term goal of over 30-some years to capture every raindrop where it falls. And it's, I was told then, and even some say, ah, oh, it can't be done. Yes, it can be. Yeah. The Wayne Berries, John Lee Nays, Steve Fedix, myself, old-timers, yes, we've all achieved that. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a fun journey, and I have learned you can, you can destroy what you built a lot faster than you can build it. Just by taking a second bite, third bite on regrowth. Okay, sure. Yeah. Do you have stories, I guess, of specific years? I don't know what the years were in your year. It, it, around here, people talk about like the drought of 1987 or 88 being one of the worst years. I mean, some of those really tough years. Do you have some stories to share on what your experience was, maybe in comparison with some of your uh, your neighbors and, and peers? Uh, yes. 1987, 1985, 1986 was increasingly drier. 1987 was pretty dry. 1988, I believe we had 2.7 inches of rainfall or moisture for the whole year. Wow. 1989, I believe it was 4.2. And we didn't get any rain until first part of July, 1990. Wow. And we had, during those years, we had increased, the, let's say the herd 1988, we had increased the herd to about 112 pairs mm. when we used to run 55, 60. And 1980, 1988, thinking, gosh, we have to cut back on some numbers of cattle. 
we culled some and we culled the herd down to 90 pairs. So that was still 50% increase over average good years of season compared to previous 1980 yeah. season long grazing. We made it through the drought years with 50% increase <laughs> of this cattle herd. And what yeah. we were having was we found we were, when it started raining in 1990, we're finding we had, we had a lot of grass. Neighboring didn't, but they had water in their wetlands, but we didn't. They had water and no grass. Sure. And we had grass and no water in the wetlands. <laughs> but we're finding now that that increased infiltration versus surface runoff, we're getting more sustained oh, levels in our wetlands. They don't get as full as they used to, but there's it's more sustained and the water stays clear. It's no more mossy green. And it's and now we're yes. And the biggest those of us old timers, including Don Campbell from Northwestern Saskatchewan. We all feel the biggest oopses we've made in the past is we not leave enough residue behind. Sure. Uh, some like Jay Fuhrer gave down to call it armor. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's the biggest oopses we've made is in the past. And that's how we learn more by our oopses a lot of times. But yeah. One extra day in a paddock, it's, uh, there's, we can come back tomorrow and move them. <laughs> That one extra day, it's just devastating. Just yeah. some of the, the things we've learned along the way. Manage manage the soil first, and it's tremendous. Well, I think what you're saying right there is almost, and I, I'm not going to wrap this up yet, but that you could wrap it up. And if somebody took any, you know, one that one thing away from this podcast to manage the soil first, make the decision based on the soil first, that would be something that could benefit them a ton because it's awfully easy to go out and look at what you're just saying, look at a pasture and say, oh, there's enough feed there to keep them another day. And there probably is. You're probably right. You could graze and the cows would not go hungry another day, but that is setting back your land and your soil and your grass that much more going forward. And so if you manage for the cattle and look at it as a perspective of, we could get another day of feed off this paddock. So we'll do that. You know, cattle are fine you've saved another day of feed or something you know that's great but it's not doing your soil any favors so yes with a perspective of looking at your soil and your grass first that decision becomes obviously an incorrect one to leave them longer and so that's that's a really good just a good point to to take away from from this one it's it's a it's a very tough paradigm to get away from mm -hmm. to do that shift uh where i was Right in the north side of where I was seeding this morning, it's actually a cousin of mine. They're vacationing right now in the Black Hills in South Dakota, and he he put some cattle on his tame grass pasture just southwest of his yard. And I, I told him, "Gosh, they're going to run out of grass there. Is this going to disappear fast?" Oh, there's a lot there. He he had his neighbor that's watching over his cows move them to another pasture yesterday because all of a sudden he thought there was a lot there and the disappearance was on that tender lush green was gone hmm. it happens fast yeah and eating the soil first by doing priority to the soil first the livestock is viewed as only as a tool 
for soil health enhancement and as a tool for marketing forage. Yes. What we're doing is using livestock to manage soil health and use them as a tool for marketing forage. And we can't market any more livestock than we have forage to feed them. So therefore, the forage takes top priority over the livestock. And yeah. it's, it gets yeah. to be uh, a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. most of us now, if the, the level we're at, we find we error on the cautious side. We get too much. Sometimes we get too much residue and litter buildup. But then there's ways of managing that, too. We can do quick heavy impact and get the litter trampled more trampled down to touching the soil to feed the soil microbes rather than standing oxidating into the mm -hmm. atmosphere yeah in your context and at your ranch specifically i'm curious how how do you increase the stock density to get that trample are you are you subdividing everything with permanent fence do you do a lot of polywire moving to increase beyond what your your subdivision fences allow and okay yes i have about uh, i'm not even sure around 30 35 permanent paddocks okay then i can then i also do subdividing within paddocks to make each one i can make each one smaller or let them bigger to, so actually the drier it is and the wetlands are dry i can do more subdividing but some of them with uh the, we have a lot of water and some of my wetlands are sort of full i lose over half my acreage in some of the paddocks so mm. but sure. it's uh could never go back to that season-long grazing or allow that second bite yeah uh, second bite sometimes is you depending on how much what percent of leaf you leave behind removing more than 50 percent of the plant leaf it just pretty much shuts down mm. and then it then it needs a lot more rest recovery and then a third bite and you move 70 80 percent of the leaf that plant is set back for two three years mm -hmm. I've, I've done clipping plots fence exclusions and clipping different heights and repeated clippings every like every 10 days 15 days through the season some clip twice some clip six times and some only clipped once and it's it's really scary how much say two years ago I, I was clipping actually with my lawnmower on the test plot and it did repeated clippings on some to a two two and a half inch height and clipped every fifteen days. Two years later, the production on that was still reduced eighty percent mm. versus those that were only clipped once or twice. Yeah. It's kind of the what people talk about a virtuous versus a vicious cycle. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Uh, say that again. I said it, it sounds kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, what it sounds thing? kind of like you're referring to almost like some people have used the term a virtuous cycle versus a vicious cycle. Okay. It's essentially what that is saying is that like whatever actions you're taking is kind of what Alan and Gabe, they talk about cascading and compounding effects. They compound on each other, good and bad. If you continuously overgraze, then yes. it's continuously, it's a vicious cycle. It gets continuously worse over time. It compounds on itself in a negative effect. Whereas if you continuously manage well and build your, your you improve over time, the forage and the land and the soil will compound. And, and that's the virtuous cycle where 
every year it's compounding on each other or on itself in, in a beneficial manner. And it's kind of, I, I you, you hear a lot about yes. the compounding effects of the benefits and I think that's great. We should talk about the compounding of the benefits and you got some company there. <laughs> the cat, That's awesome. We should talk about the benefits of the compounding effects of good management, but also there's very much so, you know, equal and opposite reaction of negative impacts. Well, the next year you'll have poorer and less re- or productive grass and the following year it'll be poorer and less. And we wonder why uh, we manage a certain way and we can't get further ahead, but um, yeah, it, everything compounds yes. or cascades on itself. And I, I have to mention, it just popped in my mind here, a very critical part is changing the time of year use every year. Mm-hmm. Manage for diversity rather than for or against specific species, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it does. Um, cool. So I'm trying to think of all the things. Well, you, so you mentioned there your clip trials. Um I, one of the things that I think was a big takeaway at your talk uh, that I know a lot of people asked you more about was your monitoring. You, you have a, a kind of a observation and monitoring checklist or something you do. I don't know if that's something you're willing to talk a little bit about or share some of the things that you evaluate on your land base as regularly as you can, I guess. Um, okay, yeah. Last year, a year ago, I was challenged to friend of mine, Jay Fuhrer, I think a lot of you know him, Yeah. he challenged me and says, hey, Gene, you're getting older. It's time to record some of the stuff you're doing. <laughs> and I, told, I told him, thanks, Jay. Yeah. We're about the same age. So I, I came up with, uh, actually, I started defining it. it. took three months to figure out what all I was observing. And I came up with 21 bullets for monitoring. Yeah. There's... Probably it'd be a. I don't have the. I don't have that in front of me right now, but. Yeah, I wouldn't expect you to remember them all off the top of your head, but maybe you want to talk about a couple of the highlights, some of the big ones that you try to uh, evaluate. Well, some of one of it would be managing for diversity rather than for or against specific species. What diversity do I have? And that includes not just plants, and the livestock use out there but it also includes insects and wildlife. They're all additional species. Mm-hmm. And another one which I really concentrated on was had a vision for a lot of years of capturing every raindrop where it falls. And so started monitoring infiltration rate with a six inch ring and pouring an inch of water in, timing how long it takes for that inch to disappear. And to begin with, maybe had at best one inch per hour. Now our poorest is six inches per hour, and their best is 12 to 15 inches wow. per hour. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's where, you know, capture every raindrop where it falls. And I started thinking, oh, snow. So many people say, and the, and the paradigm, snow doesn't count for anything because when it melts, it just runs away. Early this spring here when the snow finally started melting, I looked a mile south of my yard at a, two different neighbors' fields. It's right across from each other, a two-track trail. North side is 90% snow cover, south side, and they both had 12 to 15 inches of stubble. 
North side had 90% snow cover, south side 10% snow cover. The snow had melted on the south side, most of it. I walked in there, it was it was slushy, slurpy, slippery, gumboy, wet on the south side. Both have the same soil type. Hmm. South side was had mostly melted, but it had hard pan. It was only soaking in two, three inches, and mm-hmm. then it froze, and it yeah. created a slurpy, a snow cone effect with water sitting on the surface, melting that snow cover faster because it was sitting in water. The mm-hmm. north side has had cover crops on three times in the last 11 years behind the combine. Combine leaves the field, starts seeding cover crop. The south side, I've tried pushing the rod in, get it in an inch, North side, we had snow cover and no slurpy slush. Uh, eight to 15 inches, I could push that rod in. So it was, it was capturing everything, soaking it in versus the other side running off. So wow. snow melt, yes, it soaks in. Depends on their hard pan and soil structure. Hmm. That was well, just that... an observation I did this year. In yeah, that's one that I was interested into how that happened because i've always thought doesn't maybe matter how you know good your soil is if it's frozen solid and water can't infiltrate when the snow melts it would seem you'd think that it would run off yes jay Fuhrer says ah there's a higher level of biologic soil biological activity on the north side which also helped kept the soil warmer under the snow cover there's the soil microbes and even i've been reading during the winter and, and I'm reading that even this a lot of some of the fungal ac- species in the soil stay active down to minus five Celsius. Wow. But even if the ground is sort of semi froze, mm-hmm. they're still active. Yeah. And keeping the soil warmer and creating that soil aggregate structure like cottage cheese. That's mm-hmm. Then the further I go, the more I see how little I know, and I'm still learning. That I just picked up on here in the last couple months. Well, oh, that's fantastic. About the, about the, when the visual effect of the snow melting. Yeah, cool. What other uh, observation, of, if you remember any more of those 21 that are kind of high, or some of the more important ones that you try to monitor? Uh, the, uh, I don't do much of that infiltration ring infiltration anymore. I, I take a spade and I'll do a one jump test and how easy does it penetrate? A lot of places the season long you might jump it might go in for just one jump it might penetrate three inches. And the good healthy here will penetrate 15, 17 inches on one jump. That's another monitoring tool. Use it on cropland also. Also I just use a rod, excuse me for just pushing a rod in, how easy does it go in? And that's what I used when I was doing that infiltration and with that snow melt. And also used that same rod. I took a 5 16 diameter rod and welded a handle on it, just push it by hand, no pounding. And also, I'll also go out after a rainfall event, see 10, 12, 15, 18 hours after a rainfall and push that rod in and then leave it in for 30 seconds, pull it out, and feel the cool or the wet zone, the cool zone on that rod. 
you have a half inch of rain, inch of rain, how how deep did it infiltrate? And if, see, it was last year, if I recall right, we had 17 to 21 inches of, no, 14 to 17 inches of infiltration from a half inch of rain on the hilltop on the native prairie, went across into some native, it was all native, went across in a season long, and it only infiltrated three inches at half inch of rain. We're in the years of a rotate, planned rotational grazing rest recovery. It was 14 to 17 inches infiltration. That's another, another monitoring I do, the effectiveness of capturing that raindrop. Am I capturing 100% of it? Or, and it have to, we found it has to need to get better than 10 inches infiltration. Otherwise, it's just surface. It's more subject to surface evaporation. And if it's only in, soaking in three, four inches, it's, we're only maybe using 20% of what we get for rainfall. Uh, soil, or, soil organic matter, SOM or SOC, soil organic carbon. And monitor that periodically. And that, that's the only one that costs money is the soil test. The other 20 do a lot of photos. Photo monitoring is important. But the, if any two or three are in place, all the others are 20, say 20, 21 bullets of monitoring are pretty much in place also. Can't have one without the other. Yeah, oh, that makes sense. And I don't know if you monitor like vegetative cover or percent open ground at all. Yes. I like to see zero ground, 100% cover that armor. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's actual uh, like lay down cover. Or is that like base, like actual plant? There's a base of a plant there. I, yes, base of the plant or a residual, a standing sure. litter. If we can, litter. If it gets okay. to be accumulated and use livestock. We can do it's a little dry. They really pulverize, get it down good. Yeah. I don't like to see any bare soil. Sure. Yeah. And, and I guess the. It's a lot harder to achieve in cropland, but it's. Yeah. No, that makes if we sense. can achieve 80% cover in, basal cover in, in cropland, then I'm, sometimes we start getting too much, too high nitrogen, carbon nitrogen ratio. Then we get buildup of too much nitrogen, and that cover is disappearing too fast. And that answer is that go back to a higher carbon crop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To what you were just saying there, I, I think it was, I don't remember who I heard talk about it, but I, I thought it made a lot of sense when they referred to um, what you're kind of talking about higher nitrogen content breaking down material faster is like comparing it almost to a fire. And if you have a very biologically active soil, it's like a big fire. And if you throw wood chips on that big fire, it'll burn through it in no time. And that's like throwing a high nitrogen plant base onto a very biologically active soil. It'll, it'll decompose almost immediately. Whereas if you, you kind of need to throw a log, you know, bigger, yeah. more carbon based plants out there. And alternatively, if you have biologically dead soil and you try to lay down a bunch of carbon based, high carbon plants, it's kind of like, uh, throwing a log onto a little kindled, you know, little, little flame is it's just going to put out that fire. And if you put a bunch of carbon down onto a biologically dead soil, it's going to be unable to break that down very rapidly. But I, the, the main reason I was asking about that kind of basal cover and stuff is out of a curiosity question back to your increase in production of, I think you said 
Uh, do you do you know how much of that came from just better utilization of the grass farther away from water? How much of that came from just increased you know, more plants on the same, you know, more plant population on the same square footage? Like you're actually using more of the space, or how much of that came from plants are just growing better and more productive? Do you have any idea where that came from, or how much of? Uh, it's hard to quantify, maybe, but. It'd be multiples of hundreds of little things. Mm -hmm. I'm learning, seeing more and more things aren't any single factors, just hundreds of little things. Although a little thing can come along, it can be the tipping point yeah. for collapse. Sure. But it's step by step, little by little, managing for the roots of it, I think would be better, good way of saying it. Manage for the roots especially for a native prairie, 80% of the plant volume is in the soil. Oh, sure. And if we can, if we can double the, if we can double, triple what's in the soil or increase it four times, imagine how much more we have on the surface. Or if we can double it above the, so the sur surface of the soil, think how much more yeah. biological mass we have in the soil. It's, mm -hmm. it's tremendous when you're looking at 2080. Yeah. Yeah. No, that... That's interesting, huh? Well, cool. Um, so I guess. Well, you mentioned the drought years. Yes. Uh, two years ago, what did we have? Three point two inches of rainfall. <laughs> wow. And we had a very good crop. It's uh, gets to be uh, last year's management and weather in that order, or higher factor of this year's production than this year's weather and rainfall is. I've done enough years of charting and stuff. Yes, it jumped out at me. This year's yeah. production is previous year's management hmm. and weather in that order. Do you have any data or statistics on your cropping? You, you talk about the 450% increase or whatever in the grass production and livestock production. Do you have similar data at all or showing a reduction of inputs and equal production or anything on the crop side? Oh, yes. Yes. It's like just assuming it. I was assuming it's just a given. Yeah, yeah. But we also use livestock as a tool for as soon as the combine leaves the field, livestock are coming in for crop aftermath grazing and providing a, the hoof trampling, their dung and urine effect, and weed control, multiple factors of benefit of additional diversity on the on the land. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a fallacy for those that think livestock can't be on the cropland because they compact the soil no it's actually just the opposite just, we just manage accordingly if we have a rainfall event for cropland soil but in the livestock are there we have a contingency backup plan where the livestock can be pulled off and put into another part of the grassland and sure it's just the management of the whole rather than for or against specific we don't raise wheat for itself. It's just part of the diversity of rotation. With that management on the cropland, have you seen an increase in crop production then? Like, do you have, I'm just curious to, do you have data or anything to show increases in crop production or anything once you started managing that way? Uh, average yields are more than doubled. Wow. On the cropland with a probably 80% reduction in use of fertilizers and chemical. <laughs> That's cool. 
Yeah. And I know those, those kinds of things, you know, when I ask for specifics like that, that isn't necessarily something that everyone should go out and expect to get right away or even after a long time. But I think that those stats are incredible, inspirational, cool things to show the possibility of this doubling production while reducing to, you know, 80% of uh, reducing 80% of your, your inputs that, I mean, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure that that, that can help <laughs> operation pretty well. So that's, that's just really cool. Uh, let's see. Rocky Bateman, guy I know him, he's about 90 miles from me. He's, he converted himself and he's doing no tilling. And he was saying last winter, last year's, his last year's crop was about 10 bushel less than his neighbors that were conventional tilled. But he figured he had, they figured he had economic analysis, figured he had double the profit compared to the conventional tilled, even though he had 10 bushel less yield. Wow. That's just yeah. one example. Let's see, there was another thought just crossed my mind. It's yes, this is important to me anyway. Getting that extra yield is not the goal. That extra yield and pounds of beef per acre and the double the yield on the cropland is not the goal. That's just a result of a different goal. The goal is increased increasing soil health. We're not we're not chasing the yield. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of a case of prioritize the right things and the rest will follow. Yes, uh, definitely the increasing yield is not the goal. The goal is to improve soil and increase soil health. Mm -hmm. To me, that's regenerative agriculture. Yeah, I agree. And I appreciate that. that the question I asked originally on the, the production, you know, and stuff was probably the wrong question to ask anyway really the what matters not what matters the most important but the, the the data point that you shared again with that other person's that that's the big impactor for people is profitability more so than the actual production but when you can get healthy soils profitable businesses yeah now we're talking about a sustainable business so i appreciate you sharing that um are there any final thoughts here before we yes. wrap up the, the and, conversation today yes there are, there are other multiple side benefits. I'll give one specific example. Last year, the, the two brothers who rent our cropland had some canola in here. And I went out with testing the bricks of the juice and the stock right behind their combine in the stubble. We came up a little over five bricks. Then I went over to a neighboring where they had to, they sprayed three times with fungicide to control flea beetles and to save their yield on their, to save their canola. And I had a hard time getting a bricks of one. <laughs> and I found out that flea beetles are a predator, just like every other, like a wolf following the pack. They're going for the weak. They thrive on bricks of three or lower on canola the bricks of five they avoided another side benefit less expense didn't have to use any pesticide to save the crop from insects that's a specific yeah crazy it's the health of the plant the bricks do yeah. the bricks testing the sugars of the plant sure yeah increased yield on pounds of beef per acre isn't just the volume of the 
grass or the forage they're eating out there. It's also the extra sugars in the plant from the healthier plants. So, so one plus one is not necessarily two. One plus one can probably be three. This is just an analogy of what you think. You know? Yep. No, back to that compounding, cascading and compounding effects. Things just compound on each other as you start to manage the right way. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gene. I, I really appreciate this. It was good to good to talk to you and share your story here with a few more people. I know you were a big hit at our event last winter. And so, yeah, I just appreciate the time today. And um, I, yeah, I thank, thank you for it. Is there any way, if, if people want to learn more or, or anything, do you, do you have anything that you want to share or plug with the, the listeners? Oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Okay, no problem. Sorry about that. But, um... No problem. And actually, I just did remember, too, one question I like to ask folks as well. So before I forget, are there one, two, or three kind of resources that you would highly recommend people check out? And that can be anything from an organization to a book to a podcast, webinar, conference, anything like that. Uh, definitely. Go to meetings, go to workshops, rub elbows with the Jareds. You may include the Jared name. Yeah. And develop that network of sharing with those that are the innovative people rather than go to the coffee shop. Yeah. Take time to go to workshops, like your workshop you had in March. Mm -hmm. Definitely take time to develop those networks so, because they may be lost and they will be. For example, David Brandt, he's gone now, but look at the legacy he's left yeah. behind. Yeah, absolutely. From his uh, from his days of start learning how to start sharing, I had to force myself to learn how to to start sharing the things I'm doing because I started realizing if I share, others are sharing back with me, and I'm and whatever and whatever I share, I'm back tenfold. Develop that network of sharing. That's all important. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Perfect. Well, thanks again, Gene. I really appreciate it. Yes. Good hearing from you and good visiting with you again. Jared. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.